Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be looking at the rising anger and pressure on Boris Johnson from ministers and MPs. They're concerned that the UK is not exiting the lockdown quick enough and the Prime Minister doesn't have a grip on his overall strategy for dealing with the crisis. But is the PM going to actually confront his scientists as his colleagues want him to? Plus, we'll be diving into the Black Lives Matter protest in the UK and whether the defenestration of statues is the best way to confront the characters and difficult moments in the nation's past. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, political correspondent Laura Hughes, columnist Robert Shrimsley, and chief political correspondent Jim Picard. Thank you all for joining. If you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then do subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. It has not been a good week for Boris Johnson. Downing Street has been under attack on multiple fronts from both members of the government and a wide range of Conservative MPs. These senior Tories that we've been speaking to have expressed their private and sometimes public anger that the PM hasn't yet reduced that crucial two-metre social distancing rule which could help rev up the economy again. But there's also anger about the fact schools won't all open until September at the earliest, the lack of a timetable for getting pubs, restaurants and the hospitality industry going again, and the general sense of chaos and drift on the government's handling of the crisis. So, how serious is all this? George Parker, it's obviously been a bit of a testing week for the Prime Minister. We've been doing the rounds of Tory MPs and ministers almost every day. And every subsequent time we've talked to people, the anger seems to have simply grown about how the Prime Minister is handling the crisis, to put it lightly. Yes, well, you've got a lot of MPs now returning to Westminster. And as you say, Seb, we've been um, talking to them around Westminster in Portcullis House. And you get groups of them together, all sharing exactly the same angst. Bear in mind that they're all receiving emails from their constituents, warning that their businesses may be about to close down, complaining about the government's handling of this. And this is reinforcing itself now that MPs are able to talk to each other about it and, of course, talk to journalists. And what they're saying, I think one word probably sums up the general mood, is that they think it's a shambles. They think that there's no central grip on the virus and the government's response in number 10. They're vexed about a number of issues. You mentioned the two-metre rule, which they'd, of course, like to see cut to one and a half metres or one metre, preferably. But there are other things as well. So there's the question about the 14-day quarantine, which really annoys Tory MPs. They can't see any scientific rationale for doing that. You've got the botched reopening of schools, and you have Tory MPs saying we've got a situation where six formers will be able to go into pubs quite soon, but won't be able to go back to their schools. And a general lack of strategic communications now, I think. One MP said to me, you know, one day you read in the papers that it's all about lifting the lockdown, next that we're going to proceed very carefully. It's almost like 
every morning you have a meeting in number 10 to discuss COVID-19. And it depends who happens to have won the argument on any given day. And as a result, the government's messaging is all over the place. You know, you read the papers one day, which says that Boris Johnson wants to get out of the quarantine as soon as possible and have air bridges. And on the same day in other front pages of the newspapers, you're reading accounts saying the government needs to do this to honour the lives of people who've died from coronavirus. And just one final thing, last weekend, there were lots of briefings, including to me, I was working last Sunday about how the economic ministers were very keen to open outdoor hospitality, beer gardens, terraces and the like, with June the 22nd as a target date, only for the scientists then to come along and say that's totally impossible, and for Boris Johnson to side with them. So the whole message is extremely confused and anger is growing. There's two quotes that sort of sum up for me the mood this week. The first one was from a Tory MP who described the mood as it's all a bit crap. And the second was from a well-connected official in the Conservative Party who said that Downing Street is currently in headless chicken mode. There's a leadership vacuum. There is no consistency of approach. I think people would be more worried if they could see what things were really like inside number 10, which I think speaks Laura Hughes to this issue that there's so many different people trying to have their say and give conflicting advice on what to do here. And I think one of the key areas has been this clash between those economic ministers George was talking about and the government's scientific advisors that we know, Sir Patrick Vallance, who's the government's chief scientific officer, he's one of the key people who wants to keep the two-metre rule there and believes that reducing it would be very dangerous for the spread of the disease. But then you've got all these other people, ministers, other officials in number 10, MPs who are saying, well, forget that, we've got to get the economy moving again. And there's no way that pubs and restaurants can operate if the two-metre rule is still there. So the question is, where's the PM going to land on all this? It's Friday morning and we just had the latest GDP figures out, which showed that the UK economy lost 18 years of growth in two months. And that is going to make the Prime Minister incredibly nervous. And it really bolsters the argument that's being made by these ministers that George referenced, who are just desperate for the economy to try and get back on track. I think the really big picture story here is that if you look at other European countries who went down into lockdown a lot quicker, their economies are starting to recover quicker because they are being able to open up faster. And it feels as though we've done everything a little bit the wrong way round. So we locked down late and now we're just taking a very long time to come out of all this. And it's really hard because when the government says we follow the scientific advice and then you have Patrick Valance and Chris Whitty on the television telling journalists that now is not the time to reduce the two metre rule, it's really difficult for the PM to effectively overrule the people that he will, in retrospect, pin a lot of the problems on because it was their advice at the beginning that really did influence what measures we took and how quick or slowly we started to lock down bits of the country. If the Prime Minister is going to reduce the two-metre rule, he's going to have to override SAGE, that's the committee that advises him, made up of scientists, or SAGE are going to have to review their guidance. And that is very possible because actually if you look around the world, if you look at France and Denmark, they have the one-metre rule that World Health Organization does. So I think what we'll probably see is SAGE maybe changing their guidance in the same way that they changed their guidance on the wearing of face masks. 
The key figure in all this, George, very curiously, is Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, because he's obviously the minister primarily responsible for the British economy. And you speak to anybody around Mr. Sunak or in the Treasury, and you get these dire warnings about the state of the economy. And as Laura just said, the initial round of GDP figures show that those warnings are very much true. And there's going to be some very tough times ahead for the British economy. Now, what's been quite interesting is there was a meeting of the 1922 committee this week. That's all of the, the Conservative MPs trade union effectively. And Mr. Sunak was the one who went to speak. And from the reports that we've heard, Mr. Sunak was very calming and sort of said, yes, I understand. Yes, we need to get the economy moving. Yes, we need to look at the two metre rule, but didn't quite join forces with the rebels to say, yes, I'm going to take your fight to the heart of government. What kind of role has the Chancellor played? Because it looks like he's trying to bridge the government's official view, which is the sage scientific view that we can't reduce two metres to the view of MPs, which is we have to get rid of it as soon as possible. Well, possibly, but I think really the subtext of this is that Rishi Sunak is much more on the side of the Conservative MPs than he is of the government scientists. And that's certainly the message that comes through. Rishi Sunak's playing an interesting game here. He's involved in a lot of behind-the-scenes conversations with Conservative MPs, in the course of which he actually encourages them to make the case for the early opening up of the economy, particularly the hospitality sector. So he's basically urging Tory MPs to lobby against Boris Johnson's official position in private. And Rishi Sunak's position on this, his desire to cut the two-metre rule, his desire to get the economy going again, it's slap bang in the middle of Conservative Party opinion. Now, obviously, that's quite an interesting political position for him, because if we bear in mind, he became Chancellor after the ousting of Sajid Javid. The idea was to have a sort of joined at the hip operation between number 10 and number 11 Downing Street. But already, you're starting to see a bit more political ankle from Rishi Sunak than I think many people would have expected so early on in his time as Chancellor. But throughout the crisis, his stock has been rising and the opinion polls show that Boris Johnson's stock has been falling and it's emboldened Rishi Sunak, it's emboldened the Treasury and the people around Rishi Sunak to make a much more aggressive case for getting on and opening up the economy and frankly, urging Boris Johnson now to take on the scientists in that very difficult decision that Laura's just been describing. And earlier in the week, George, if I'm right, you wrote about this Save the Summer Six, which is this group of ministers who are the ones leading that charge. They're going up against Matt Hancock, who's the health secretary, who is obviously primarily concerned with coronavirus and making sure it doesn't spread out of control. This group of six, how influential would you say are they? Because ultimately, this is all going to come down to what Boris Johnson wants to do. And he began this crisis very hawkish on the economy, trying to get things opening and moving up again. Then now as we know, Mr. Johnson had his own bout with coronavirus. And then since then, all the reports are he's become much more dovish. And he's been on the side of the pro-lockdown people, which is Matt Hancock and Michael Gove. Do you get any sense that Mr. Johnson's opinion is changing yet again on this? Well, certainly it oscillates, doesn't it? Because it goes from him saying that he wants to proceed with extreme caution to a situation where a couple of weeks ago, he said that he hoped to see a cut in the two-metre social distancing rule. And he thought it would be possible to open up the pubs before July the 4th, which is the date in the government's roadmap. But now he seems to have gone back, as you say, to the cautious end of the spectrum. It comes down to a very difficult economic judgment, but also a political judgment for the prime minister, because he has to decide, on the one hand, if he ignores the advice of the scientists or overrules SAGE, the danger is that they will come out and say that we advised the prime minister not to do this. And 
there's a second peak in the virus and the country has to go back into lockdown. The prime minister has no political cover. He'll be in an extremely exposed position, potentially a terminal political position if many more people die. On the other hand, if he sticks with the advice, he's siding against the summer six, you call it, the save the summer six. This is the minister's whose departments are most directly involved in trying to get the economy going back again, and a danger that the economy continues to tank. So it's a really difficult position for Boris Johnson to be in. At the moment, it feels like Boris Johnson is with the scientists and with Matt Hancock. But as we were saying right at the start of this programme, there's very little strategic grip at the moment. And that's not to say that by the time people listen to this podcast, Boris Johnson's position may have changed and a completely different set of briefings will be going into the Sunday newspapers. Well, Laura, it's a very difficult situation for the Prime Minister, but that's not the only area he's under pressure from because the scientific and health side of this crisis has also been exerting a huge amount of pressure on the Prime Minister. So the first moment this week was this extraordinary hearing of Neil Ferguson, who's the epidemiologist professor at Imperial College London, known as Professor Lockdown by the tabloid newspapers. And he popped up at the Science Select Committee and said, if we'd locked down a week earlier, the death toll would have been higher. It was an extraordinary intervention, a very bold claim. It showed to me that when we get the inevitable public inquiry, it's going to be so brutal with people throwing around big accusations like that. Because obviously, Professor Ferguson's face to say that in hindsight, and various people have pulled up minutes from the SAGE group that said that, in fact, he was not necessarily recommending a lockdown at that point. But it's had very big political repercussions with people saying this is more proof the government hasn't got this thing right from the off. I thought this was a huge, huge moment because, of course, Professor Ferguson was there. He was in the room. He was one of the Prime Minister's chief advisors on this. His paper that Imperial published was really the paper that prompted the government to introduce the lockdown. And he made a couple of really damning points. So, He did admit that actually the modellers had underestimated how far into the epidemic the country was and that a lot of cases had come into the UK from abroad and those had not been taken into account. But the other one is that he said that scientific advisors had just not expected to see the numbers of deaths in care homes because these SAGE members just assumed that residents in care homes would be shielded and that they would be protected. In other words, He said that the government failed to protect care homes. And that is why we have seen such devastating numbers, particularly elderly people. When there is an inquiry, these sort of comments, the conversations that were being had at the time are going to be really important. The big question is that time period where we might have missed taking really serious action to try and prevent death in the long term. And one of the sort of really scary things that Neil Ferguson said that they realised in retrospect was that in the first two weeks of March, you had 2,000 infections being imported in from Italy and Spain. Also, the reproduction rate was tripling every day and we just didn't have a handle on it and everyone was going about their business as normal. So I just really thought that was such a stark and striking admission from one of the scientists that was advising the government at the time. And very briefly, Laura, I just want to get you an update on test and trace what's going on, because we got the first return from figures this week about how the contact tracing scheme is going and also what's going on with that app. The app was meant to be a key part of the government's test, track and trace strategy. And you've picked up that Downing Street's not exactly happy with it. And we still might change course at this very late stage from the UK's homegrown app to one built by Apple and Google. 
Yeah, so I think what's happened with the app is that when the NHS started to build their own one, they didn't know that Apple and Google were going to have this technology available. So they put all their efforts into building it and they've invested so much into it now that there's almost a feeling, I think, from Matt Hancock that you don't want to give up yet. But there is real frustration from Prime Minister himself that this is just taking too long. And the reality is that we probably will end up moving to this Google Apple system because it uses Bluetooth technology that allows people to continue to sort of play into the system if they go abroad. And that's going to be a really big part of all of this. We got the figures this week on the test and trace operation that we have got running, which is being run by human contact tracers. And the figures aren't disastrous, but it shows that the contact tracers had failed to reach a third of those people who have reported they were suffering from coronavirus and that there were a number of people who either refused to give up their contacts or said they were going to refuse to self-isolate. And Matt Hancock said that for now, they're not going to make this mandatory, but of course they could. Away from coronavirus, the Black Lives Matters movement has entered the mainstream of British politics this week. Protests have sprung up across the UK following the death of George Floyd, who was killed by police in America. Most of the protests have been peaceful, but a small minority have turned a little violent. Statues have become the target of these protests, with infamous slave trader Edward Colston being knocked off his perch in Bristol. But more historical figures have also been targeted, including Winston Churchill in Parliament Square, as politicians try to guess the public mood and stay on the right side of the debate. So Robert Shrimsey, let's kick off on this. You tackled Edward Colston head-on in your column this week, saying it was right the statue was brought down even if you disagreed with the way it was done. What sort of response did you get from FT readers? Um, why do you think that Colston was someone who was right to be toppled? I think the point about Colston is that he should have been a very, very easy call. This is a man of no important historical significance whatsoever, who undoubtedly did great philanthropy for his native Bristol, set up a lot of charitable work, but a large part of that work was done with money he made in the slave trade. And he wasn't an incidental figure in the slave trade. He really was in it up to his neck. So I think when people were looking at examples of where councils and cities and towns are not listening to concerns of protesters, he was just a very straightforward target. Because if you can't agree that he could come down, then how are you going to tackle the more difficult cases? Now, like a lot of other people, I don't think this should be done by a crowd of people turning up and vandalizing statues. I think it should have been agreed earlier. But sometimes a small piece of violence crystallizes the mind for everybody else. The reaction I got was, I think you'd have to say mixed. There are plenty of people who agreed with me in saying that you have to listen to concerns, you have to try and engage with history and reach a line that says these people are on the wrong side of that line. There are plenty of people who were very angry and just said, no, you can't erase history. And I have a problem with that at two levels. First of all, of course, a lot of these statues are put up long after the person they're celebrating's death and often for other political and propagandizing reasons. It's also an exercise in reputation management. People give vast amounts of money after their death so they are celebrated, whatever they did in their lives. But I think you can attempt to draw some kind of line that says, look, are we celebrating these people because of things that are directly linked, for example, to slavery? Or are we celebrating them for other reasons? And this is a murky and unpleasant part of their past. And I think, therefore, it's very easy to say, if you look, for example, to America, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, they were both slave owners. On the other hand, they're celebrated because of their role in founding the United States. Winston Churchill has some very dark moments in his 
history, but he's celebrated primarily for what he did in the Second World War. And I think a lot of the time it is possible to say, yes, of course, no one's a saint. They can be a hero without being a saint. And maybe we need to say a bit more about them. Maybe we need to delve into their history a bit more. But you don't want to go around tearing down every statue. And I think it's counterproductive for the Black Lives Movement to get associated with ripping down every piece of British history, because that will create a backlash where prior to the weekend they had a substantial well of sympathy. Well, Jim, of course, we've been here before with various statues of people, notably Cecil Rhodes at Oxford. But it does feel this week that the culture war has kicked up a few notches here with everybody dividing into their left-right tribes here with people on the left side of British politics saying it's great that this was brought down. It doesn't matter about the means of which it was pulled down. And then people on the right side of British politics saying it's a disgrace that public property is being vandalised. What are the police doing? And it really feels as if everyone's just getting blown apart by this debate. There's a lot of anger. And I think you did a tweet that struck me this week, which said that you can believe in the Black Lives Matter movement and believe things need to be done to tackle racism, but also believe that protests shouldn't turn violent to achieve those means. Yes, I think that tweet, I I thought about it for about two hours before writing that single sentence because I didn't really want to wade into the debate. I was actually making the point that it's possible to care about Black Lives Matter and also care about the failures on social distancing. Because when you saw those pictures of those crowds, especially a week ago when you had those huge crowds in the centre of London, and you thought about the potential spread of coronavirus, we all know that BAME members of the community are more likely to get coronavirus and die from coronavirus than anyone else. I found it quite depressing that people were unable to protest in a way that maintained social distancing. I sort of hoped that it would have been possible to have done both. But the statues, it's a whole new manifestation of the debate. I think the first point to make is that I would rather 10,000 statues come down than have anyone human being being hurt or harmed or killed. I suppose they do have huge symbolism. And for me, the Bristol debate was particularly interesting because I used to work there as a reporter 20 years ago. I mean, the whole issue around the Colston statue was a big one then. I should also disclose that my wife went to Colston School, so it's quite a bizarre one for her to watch. So Marvin Rees, who is black, is the, the Labour mayor of Bristol, and he's been there for many years. And I can't help thinking either he didn't get to grips with it because he didn't want to sort of wade into the debate solo, or maybe our mayors don't have sufficient powers. But it, this could have been solved by the council or by the mayor a long, long time ago. The good news is that they've ended up where this should be, which is that the statue is going to end up in a museum with a, with a full explanation. The issue we're going to have is, as Robert has pointed to, it's consistency, because it's when you start getting people discussing Churchill and Gladstone that things start to get complicated. There was a fantastic column that Danny Finkelstein in The Times did about a year ago, where he, he said, you know, people should acknowledge that Churchill was a white supremacist, especially by today's standards. He said some very horrendous things. He said in 1937, I do not admit that great wrong has been done to the Red Indians of America or the black people of Australia, describing white people as a stronger race, a higher grade race, or at any rate, a more worldly wise race. But I think most of us in this country acknowledge that Churchill's historic role in terms of fighting the Nazis probably does outweigh his attitudes of the time. And I was chatting to a, a Tory minister of a BAME background this week, and this person said to me, look, Jim, in the old days, everyone was racist. Now, that's very much a Tory point of view, and it's not one that gets much sympathy 
from the left, as we all know. I think one of the things that we forget is the crystallizing power of protest to change people's mind or at least make them think. I remember being a reporter in the late 80s when the gay rights movement was at its most active and still had a lot to achieve. And many of their protests really upset people. I remember they did kiss-ins in public places like Piccadilly Circus and lots of people were outraged by that. But the point is it made people stop and think and reflect and say, hang on, are we as a society exactly where we want to be? Or have we fallen too far behind? The problem with protests is it's very easy to condemn them, especially when they get violent or out of hand. But there is a use to these things if they can stay in control of themselves. And it does feel like that has been the mood this week, because as you said about the Colson statue, Robert, I've not seen anybody of any significance saying that this thing should stay there. The nuance point, which you said, was also brought forward by Keir Starmer, the new Labour leader, who himself is trying to tread a very difficult political line on this, because a lot of the people in his party would be very happy to see it torn down. But he said, yes, the statue should have gone years ago, but no, it shouldn't have been brought down in this way. But it does feel as if this is a pivotal moment for how we look at racism within the UK. I thought it was interesting that Sajid Javid, who's the former chancellor from a BME background, came out and said that the Windrush scandal was a big moment a couple of years ago when it was a huge amount of outcry about how Britain was treating people who'd come to this country in the middle of the 20th century to work hard. But the cultural change that was expected didn't really flow from that. So do you think this is going to be something that's going to make a big difference into the future, Jim? Or do you think this is just kind of one of those flashing the pan moments resulting from the protests? I would love to hope that it would change things. And I think it will change certain things in a superficial way in terms of who we commemorate with statues, for example. And there was a very moving interview that The Guardian did with one of the protesters down in Bristol. And this guy said, you know, I've always been a law abiding citizen, but I've hated for years walking past that statue as a black man with my daughter and having to explain to my daughter who this person is who's being venerated in this statue. So I think good things may flow from this. I think if we were to step back a second about where we are in history, and we are still in the middle of a pandemic, which is going to have huge, huge economic costs. And we all know that the costs of the pandemic are going to fall hardest on people on low income, people who aren't on the housing ladder, people struggling to get a foothold in employment. We know that for black people, levels of unemployment are much higher than for white people. And we are about to enter a period of huge, huge unemployment, potentially. And I think the government much more likely to be judged on how they deal with the economic fallout from the pandemic, whether they protect the most vulnerable in society, much more than their approach to a couple of statues. Now, Robert, what did you make of Boris Johnson's response to this situation? Because he notably stayed out of the protests and didn't comment on them. But he did a tweet last Sunday, I believe it was, where he condemned the violence, but also started to wade a little bit into the culture war. And we know there are people in Downing Street who would like the prime minister to wade much more deeply into the culture war when he was accusing minority of violent protesters of undermining the cause they purport to serve. But then a couple of days later, the PM did a video where he said, of course, all black lives matter and we do need to tackle racism in society, even if he doesn't think Britain is a racist country. So it seems like the Prime Minister is trying to be quite nuanced here. And when you compare him to Keir Starmer, it didn't strike me there was that much difference about how they're dealing with this. They both want to have a debate about racism in the UK and how to tackle it, just not people ripping up statues. I think that's right. This also goes to your earlier question about how significant this turns out 
to be. And I think it's really important that the Black Lives Matter movement keeps its eyes on the big prize here, which is actually changing attitudes in societies and in creating greater opportunity and equality for people. And if this becomes all about statues and taking away TV shows and all these things that are symbolic but are not fundamental, then the danger is that you create this movement against what you're trying to achieve. Windrush is more interesting because although, as you said, the backlash of Windrush didn't go far enough in shifting attitudes, it did shift attitudes because everybody could see how unjust this was. And I think this is where Keir Starmer has got it exactly right. There is no point in encouraging disorder because that will, in the end, achieve the opposite of what you want. There are so many people out there just waiting to pounce on statues being ripped down illegally and all kinds of culture war activity that you do need to calibrate this and you do need to get it right. I mean, I think Boris Johnson's responses were reasonable if you believe he believes them. The danger is that the Conservative Party, whenever it's in trouble, whenever it is got its backs against the wall, it can be tipped into the sort of the law and order stance and a bit of the culture war positioning. At the moment, he's held the line on this with relatively little give to people who would like him to come out and clobber protesters. But I think if this goes on, then he's going to be pushed into a more hardline position. The worry, or what ought to be the worry for those who support the Black Lives Movement, is that actually he will carry sway if we see this movement gathering pace in the wrong way. That's ultimately bad news for that movement. If you go back to the Colston case, it's an interesting one because there were efforts for years to put a second plaque on the Colston statue. Just acknowledge that although he did these great things for Bristol society, he made his money in an extremely unappealing way. It was the council's failure to do that and the failure of both sides of the argument to agree on wording, which ultimately led to what happened last weekend. And I think the wake up call for everybody is to say, look, maybe you just need to acknowledge what people are saying here and nuance the history that you tell when you tell it. Quite. And finally, Jim, this point that Robert talked about, where the Conservative Party looks at these sort of things, there was this quite stark exchange in the House of Commons this week between Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, and several Labour MPs. And they were raising questions about institutional racism with the Home Secretary. And Ms Patel kind of hit back and accused them of trying to undermine her position as a person of an ethnic minority. And they then sent a letter complaining about her response. Can you just explain what was going on there and why this is sort got both sides so angry because, as we were just saying, the leaders of both parties seem to be in agreement on what should be done and how to handle this situation. But not everyone is necessarily as cohesive on this. Yes. So the perspective of conservative politicians of a BAME background is that they think that Labour left-wing people are happy to embrace diversity and talk about the right for BAME voices to be heard unless they're right-wing ones or unless they're conservative ones. And what was at issue here was the fact that the Home Secretary, who is herself from Ugandan Indian heritage, her parents came over from Uganda back in the 1960s, so she had condemned some of the protesters for failing to observe social distancing. And she also criticised the Bristol protests, describing them as a mob when they tore down the statue. And she was unhappy with the fact that the police from Avon and Somerset stood by and didn't intervene. And she had strong words for them in private. And what happened is these Labour MPs, led by Naz Shah, who's Shadow Minister for Community Cohesion, signed by quite big names such as Diane Abbott and Dawn Butler. The letter sort of 
accused the Home Secretary of gaslighting the BAME community and called on her to reflect on your words and consider the impact it had towards black communities in the UK trying to highlight their voices against racism and saying that just because she was a person of colour does not automatically make you an authority on all forms of racism. Priti Patel, in return, stuck this letter on Twitter and said she would not be silenced She said these Labour MPs were dismissing her contributions because she didn't conform to their view of how ethnic minorities should behave. And this is a debate that certainly won't be going away. But that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to George, Jim, Robert and Law for joining us. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard, then do check out our latest subscription offers at ft.com to see some more FT journalism. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Breen Turner. Until next time, thank you for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.